This is Strength to Strength Books, and welcome here to our first author interview on this platform. Um, so if you haven't known it before, now you know um, that here at Strength to Strength, we are starting a bookstore where we're not only selling books, but also publishing books. And we're kicking off the store um, with two new books, um, a book by Hector Troyer, Jesus and the Mennonites, and also a book by Glenn Martin uh, called um, uh, Righteous Lot. And so we'll we'll get to Glenn later on sometime on an interview. But this evening, um, Sam and I get to interview Hector um, on this book and why he wrote this book. So um, Hector, welcome here. Good to have you here with us. So Hector, tell us a little bit about um, who you are um, and tell us a little bit about why you wrote this book. And we're going to Sam and I are going to kind of ask you some questions and you can kind of give some of the backstory uh, behind this book called Jesus and the Mennonites. But first of all, I did, I did, I couldn't keep myself from saying this. And that is this evening, uh, I joined Hector and his boys and, and my boys and some other brothers from our congregation. And we did a ice plunge in the local creek. Um, it was my first time. Hector's been doing this now for, I don't know, a year or two. And uh, this year, they're upping the ante to once a week. And I got drugged into this thing and I got drugged into the creek. But it was an exhilarating experience. 46 degrees for five minutes. Uh, it was quite an experience. Yep. And I'm still kind of tingling from that yet. <laughs> but um, but no doubt, I'm, I'm thankful for a warm house. So anyhow, Hector, what do you do? What do you do to polar plunges or ice plunges? Well, um, since moving here to Pennsylvania, it has been just uh, very cold. I just always hated winters. So I thought, hey, I've got to do something to make winters less hateful. So um, I decided there's nothing better to do than just take the bull by the horns and um, and go, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just. Just go swimming, they're like pretend like it's summer. Um, and it's actually been, it's actually been really great. It's been really nice to to just go. It's it's been really fun. It's it's got a lot funner this year because we've because of all the extra people going along. It had earlier just been me and several of my children, and then they kind of decided they didn't want to go anymore. And and so this year when Gabe said, Hey, let's go every week, I said, Sure, let's do it. So it is really made winters give gives you something to look forward to every every Friday night. Well, and and the, the psychological pressure on the other brothers in the congregation to join is is, is pretty intense. So, uh, way to go there, way to go. All right. Um, so yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself, Hector, a little, your family, your background, and um, launch into this book. Why did you write this book? So the why is a very, um, a very long, I don't know how much time you got, but anyway, um, <laughs> so I was born and raised, uh, Mennonite Christian fellowship, which is similar to conservative beachy, um, group and growing up, I, I was 
always had a kind of a, my dad was a, was a missionary evangelist type person ordained when he was very young. I never remember when he wasn't. Um, and he was always about uh, helping start churches and that's been his passion. Sure. So me coming along and, and observing all this and, and dad was also really, uh, had a lot of interaction with all kinds of people just from every walk of life that were interested in evangelism. So the evangelism thing became uh, pretty big in my life and very, you know, I was really interested in it, but I never could figure out, I, I could never figure out how to marry that to the Anabaptist, the conservative Anabaptist culture that I was in. Um, and it was a good culture. Like I, I enjoyed it about, um, six years ago, we moved to state college, Pennsylvania, into a slightly different flavor of church followers of Jesus. And um, for various reasons, one of them is that my parents are here. I have a, a wife and six children, and my youngest is about three, and the oldest has just turned 16. So anyway, with this, as I was trying to figure out how to marry evangelism to our culture, I just really wrestled with the idea that we had to go out and be this um, Protestant evangelist to be able to to be evangelistic. Hmm. Um, and I tried some of that. I've done some, I've done some street um, evangelism, holding up signs, and it's fun. Like I enjoyed, I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, that wasn't something I didn't enjoy. But I just really was wrestling with how can this fit into our culture? So I started looking around and I started probably 15 years ago, I started really, really diving into this and trying to figure out why or what's working. That was my, that was my big question. Well, what does actually work? So the first thing was I wanted to make sure that, that I was in the right, um, I wanted to make sure that the, that the, the Bible basis for what I was believing was correct. So I really looked at that hard and, and looked around at all the other types of religions. And I decided, no, I am really where I want to be. Like I'm, I'm really where I want to be as far as I, I'm not looking for a different gospel. I'm really, I'm happy with the gospel that we have, but I was like, why is this not, why does it seem like it's not, um, evangelistic enough? And I looked around, I noticed that people that were coming to our type of churches were hardly ever more than, at the most, three families in a church was pretty much max. Often a church would have one or two. It didn't seem to matter how big the church was. If you had a 30-family church, you might have two. And if you had a 10-family church, you might have two. And so as I kind of started developing this idea and looking around, I thought, well, maybe that is our problem. Maybe that we're maybe we need to be have more exposure to more people. So that's kind of where the um, where the idea was born was that that how can we share the gospel as a group, as a as a faithful 
city on a hill without adopting these evangelism um, tactics that are counterproductive and and have us, you know, I was really uncomfortable with going out and um, say, if you're out on the, if you're out on the street holding up signs, you may be you're likely to run into other people that are that are really happy with what you're doing that are not um, not living out the faith was delivered to the saints, and and that just really bothered me. Like how like we 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 really easy seem like we could easily come in with those kind of people, and that mm. I didn't like that lack of. Um, I'm not sure if it's lack of distinction or just like this uh, inability to to really be. It seemed like the, our effectiveness was was really got cut down because of the the way we were interacting with the with the evangelical world around us. So in that you were you'd have people come by that you didn't agree with or that's not really the point that you didn't agree with them, but weren't holding the gospel as you did. And they were the ones that were affirming in what you were doing. Right. So it was a very easy, I mean, it seemed like we got a lot of honor. Like those people were really willing to honor us in what we were doing while at the same time, from my point of view, they were, they were not living. Right. Uh, they were not living according to scripture, but they were really, they were happy to affirm us in what we were doing. And what was interesting in, in that we also got most of our criticism also came from professing, professing Christians. So and like both sides, you know, both sides of professing, professing Christianity were really happy to engage with, with us as, as street evangelists. And I'm not, I'm still not, um, I'm not knocking street evangelism. I still think it's an interesting way to do it. I'm just not sure about the effectiveness. That leads me to a question that I had in the first question that came to mind in reading your book. Um, So now you're talking about an evangelism where you're going out for the purpose of speaking to people about Jesus on the street, basically. And I guess it's all right. We just get right into this. Um, On the other hand, your book, you're saying we need to rediscover or think about what Amish evangelism is. Can you expand on that? I have to say the first time I read it and I saw that, you know, it's Jesus and the Mennonites rediscovering Amish evangelism. I was taken (laughs) aback a little bit um, because I guess I'd never thought of the Amish as evangelistic. And it seemed like an interesting uh, thing to aspire to be. So maybe since we're um, talking about the one form of evangelism, which is going out to talk to people on the street, basically about Jesus or this, I think in your book, you talked about um, the need to say something about Jesus to every person that you meet. And then, so that leads us to Amish evangelism. Um, can you give us a Sam, description of that? Yeah. yeah. And Sam, maybe just to just to, what you're doing is what you were saying there is you were as you were reading his book, you were you were seeing he's kind of juxtaposing right two ways, right? So 
you know, you have the the idea that you got to, you know, talk about Jesus to every person you meet, or it's this idea of Amish evangelism. But maybe to to be clear here, um, your subtitle is this: a call to reclaim the spirit of okay. Amish evangelism. So, Hector, yeah, what in the world are you saying by this? Um, it does seem maybe um, contradictory to her, this idea of kingdom expansion. So tell us more. So it's hard to hard to imagine Amish and evangelism in the same sentence. Is that what you're saying? It, yeah. It's not something that I had ever heard before. Uh, and then to see, you know, reclaim the spirit of Amish evangelism. But maybe... But maybe the ironic thing, though, is whenever I meet an international student at Penn State here, I mean, they could be from the back 40 of Pakistan. And, but they, they think that you guys are Amish, right? Like I watched a movie on the Amish. <laughs> so it's ironic, right? Like this idea that, you know, the people who eschew it, are are known around the world and like pretty intimately at times like they understand like even with high respect you know if they've watched the, the maybe the movie or two that might be good about the amish of course there's some that are pretty off but anyhow yeah so back to you hector now so amish evangelism is really a, a very tough a very tough um thing to explain because every i, I discovered since i wrote this and I had I had various people um, pre-read it to to see what you know look for mistakes or or ideas that may I may need to weed out. They they had when I was talking to them later, they all had a different idea of what about Amish evangelism is, which I think is great. Like I love all that, that it's a multifaceted um, idea. So my idea with Amish evangelism is the idea of, of a quick moving lay member led church planting. Hmm. Um, it's organic. It's often led by lay members. Um, and they go out and choose a new spot and move there. So that that's where that that's the main idea of the Amish evangelism. Like I looked at that's another pragmatic, um, you know, thing that I was looking at is like who, who's expanding the most? I mean, why are we not? Why aren't we the? Why aren't we the leading edge of of expansion? Why are the Amish the leading ed edge of expansion? And then I'm looking around and and they're they're just if they decide to move somewhere like when we lived in Missouri. Um, Amish communities were were just popping up around us. It just seemed like no one was safe anymore. Like uh, an Amish community was going to pop up somewhere close, and it's just it's amazing how fast they're moving and how quickly they're they're taking new territory. And that's my that's what I'm thinking by, by Amish evangelism the the quick moving organic. Um, and then they're and they're also holding their culture like they're it's not a it's not like they're going out there and and sitting somewhere by themselves for a while and you know finally giving it up and and dragging back home. It's like 
most of them are are moving two or three families and before you know it they're six or ten and and they as soon as they're big enough they do it again so that is where the uh the flywheel or the or the re you know that's the part that i really love about that is a very it's it seems like they have they're at, at a at a stage now where they can really quickly reproduce um and and quickly do this again without losing their culture but also without a lot of angst like they just are able to go do it i think in the last chapter you called it uncomplicated inexpensive and replicable right exactly that that's of course the point of evangelism is to redeem souls it's to um spread the evangel the good the good news the gospel um so what does that look like in daily life then so what you're talking about is a um duplication of community duplication of culture so it's moving into another area um so how does the evangelism look like so now you're in a new community there's a handful of families that might have moved there um where does the spreading the gospel come in there and and maybe maybe i'll jump in and kind of build on this question a little bit farther yet sam um and and i have you know as i read this book i was dog gearing and, and catching some notes um here as i w- went through it kind of preparing for this interview and i have i i i made this this comment is that I think at the at the, at the heart of this book is the dilemma that you're wrestling with, and that's here on page 32. The dilemma we face today is how to evangelize better than our ancestors without falling into the same trap as the many others who walked this path before. The saddest thing about history is how often we fail to learn from it. We do not honestly assess the mistakes of our forefathers. If we did, if we do not honestly assess the mistakes of our forefathers, we likely will be doomed to repeat them. Nearly every group tends towards preserving culture at the expense of evangelism or promoting evangelism at the expense of culture. And then you kind of build these two straw men, Amish on one side, evangelical Christianity on the other side. So back to kind of Sam's question, what are you saying? Like, as as you think about this, what are you picturing? What does this look like? For us, uh, as Anabaptist people, as Mennonite people, what, whatever name you add to yourself as kingdom people, to move this forward. So I think where where the Amish and a lot of the conservative Mennonites have really gone wrong is they have they have, um, I guess to quote you, Bryant, um, you know, long lanes and and you know, white picket fences and and it's just the it's they have built this impenetrable um, separation, which some of them would would consider this to be separation from the world, but I think it's just a worldly separation. Um, <laughs> and it, it becomes it's ouch. <laughs> um, I I think it really like when I think of evangelism, I recently read the. Uh, or last year, I read the um, Patient Ferment of the Early Church. 
And that really helped shape this, bring some of these thoughts together that I had, that I was fermenting. Sure. Uh, and I think evangelism to, in a, in a conservative Mennonite or Amish culture would look like inviting, would look like hospitality. I think that would, I think that is the key to evangelism is, is hospitality. Like really just, um, leaning into our neighbors and, and our, and people around us and, and finding ways to, to mm. not only, not just present, present the gospel, but to present the living gospel, to present a, a living, a love of humanity to them. And it's hard. Like I, I'm not, I don't, I don't, claim to ma have mastered that at all i'm still it's easy for me to default to the classic mennonite you know just i would i would love to live back a long lane and um on a farm with a creek and just exist but uh recently i've been working on a job actually and, and i and i it kept coming up in my mind like it was way back way down in in rural pennsylvania and it's 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 beautiful now it's just amazingly beautiful we're working on an old barn and it's just really kind of tugs at my heart like i'm like there's a beautiful creek there behind the house and just like well if we could just live here and then i'm like then what like it just i i think we somehow um and I'm not saying you couldn't live there and, and still spread the gospel, but I, I just hate the idea of of living in this safe little place and then diving out and quickly trying to um, catch some fish and then go back and hide again. Like that—that's the part that I would really like to see us think hard about. And and I feel like that—that that would, if Mennonites, there's enough of us in this in this um conservative culture if we were willing to just really sacrifice some of our of our comfort and push the edge a little bit i think there could be a a huge harvest from that because it's not like every i mean it the most of the people that i've talked to that have have joined a conservative Mennonite church have done so because somebody showed an interest in them, because somebody cared about them, because somebody spent some time with them. It wasn't because, I mean, there's occasionally somebody that was just, you know, blown off their feet with John 3.16, but not very often. Most of the time, it's somebody that has really come and, and invested in their lives. And if everybody would have the vision to do that, I, I think it could be just unbelievably powerful amazing so <clears throat> well what really excites me about this book hector um is kind of this holistic picture or this holistic game plan this this uh, strategy that you're presenting um where it's it's not all just just evangelism but where it's everyone kind of bringing their gift to the table, all right? Um, and everyone being being motivated to to steward the gift of hospitality and even 
being willing to go and and you really get into that. I mean, this we won't even touch on a. There's so many things in this book we won't touch on tonight, but you kind of lay out a map, the issues, and then a map for us to how to move forward. Um, some principles, and you you say it so well. Um, but but what 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 makes me kind of what makes me so excited about right now this conversation is we live in a moment where Christianity in the West is having this whoa moment like across every denomination people are pausing and going wait a minute we'll no we're no longer a majority here we are a minority and some people were panicking and so they get angry defensive and when you begin to do that boy <clears throat> you're well as, as you as you said in conflict resolution talk you, you get like 30% dumber right like it just you, you just do dumb stuff but um, but it's, it's an opportunity. And, and it, but what's, what's interesting is for us as Anabaptists, we're like, well, we've always been a minority. Like, welcome to our world. <laughs> we haven't always had, we, that, that's giving us, that's being really kind to us. Um, but in general, we, we've had this understanding that we are sojourners here. We're on the outside. Um, so coming back to this idea in this cultural moment that we're in, uh, I think about what Tim Keller says. He says this, um, in a recent, now he's late Tim Keller, but um, he's, he said this quote, the Christian church in the West faces the first post-Christian deeply secular culture in history. It has not yet developed a way to do evangelism with the secular peoples and with the nuns, okay, those who, who don't come in religion. Uh, that really great gains traction and sees people regularly coming to the faith. And then he goes on to say, kind of build a, um, an idea of what this could look like if the church was to see more people coming to Christ. And he says this, the means or the way this is going to happen will entail a mobilization of lay people or just regular people, not some kind of seminary trained or, you know, some guy with some PhD in missiology or something. It's just, it's, it's the regular Christians. So a mobilization of regular Christians in evangelism as they did in the early church. And he said, then the content or the platform or the conduit that, that will show how to demonstrate to deeply skeptical people that Christianity is respectable, desirable, and believable. And I just had to just, I, I can't help, but Hector, I, I know you, you you would probably ask me not to say this, but I never asked you before, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. And, and, and as I've observed you and your family there on Lime Rock Terrace, you moved into a house that was had been confiscated by ICE and by Homeland Security because some uh, large Rus uh, Chinese restaurant owner had had owned the house and basically was keeping illegal immigrants, Chinese people there as slaves to work in his restaurant. They came and confiscated it, ended up putting up for auction. It got bought. Now you're living there, and 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 it went from this ugly place to where now heaven is coming to earth there. I mean, you walk out in the backyard, you got more stuff growing in more places. I mean, I didn't even know you had places or could grow in places, okay? Stuff growing, there's chickens, there's, I mean, and and then, and then right around you is, is is these apartment buildings where they can like look down on you <laughs> and, and watch you guys. Um, I'm sure it's not always perfect, but 
in, in so many ways, heaven has come to earth there. And then this summer, I, we went over to your street for a, a street picnic where you guys hosted and your neighbor, your backyard was full of neighbors and children everywhere. Just an incredible time. And then your neighbor right beside you, um, who we actually lived in that street for seven years. We, I didn't think we ever talked to him. So he was, he was number, a couple houses up from us, but right next to you. And, um, but now he's coming to church every Sunday. And Hector and Lois and their family drew, slowly won him over. And he's hanging out on their side porch and just the children over in his house, at his yard. You know, now a brother from our church actually lives with him. It's just amazing. Uh, but this happened over an eight-year period, right? It wasn't fast. Eight years with us there in that street. Now we're no longer there. But then, you know, five years with you slowly, right? So it's such an this idea of, of kind of, of spreading out. Uh, of moving into more of the population centers and living life that you're calling us to do here. And this book is is really, really inspiring. Uh, well, you talk about, you said, you made the comment about many people coming to Christ. You said, if we you said, if we would all do this, just in this interview here, many people will come to Christ. And Tim Keller says too, he says, that sees many people regularly come into the faith. Um, what does many look like to you? Do you see, you know, uh, 10 souls, you know, getting baptized a year? Like as you think of a, of a, of a kingdom community, of a, of a community that moves into Chicago, you know, four or five families, what does that look like? What is our, what should be our expectation? So I would, I would tend to, First off, I, I think we're sitting. I think we are really on the edge of a of a amazing opportunity. I think I think uh, plain people in general. And, and Sam, you asked me about the title. I didn't answer your question there, so I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that partly here too. So the reason I named this Jesus and the Mennonites, it was actually a it was actually a bunch of friends and I that were together talking about this and and. Somehow we came up with the name. We're talking. This was ten years ago. We, I named the book before I wrote it. Um, but this Jesus that I'm, the Jesus that I'm referring to, is not um, our King Jesus. It is the. I actually almost wanted to use the small case J. I wasn't sure if some people might actually be a little too offended by that. But mm. um, it was. It was because. I see Mennonites really. I noticed in my age range that there were just a lot of people that were quoting. Um, this was twenty years ago already. A lot of a lot of people were quoting um, John MacArthur and John Piper, and it was a lot of quotes like that. And I just Keller, huh? Tim Keller. Um, I didn't hear, I never heard his name. I, I'm assuming that you, he's probably on the wrong side of the fence. I don't know. Um, I just quoted him. But yeah. yeah, I know you did. But you know, they're all quoting these, these, these people. And hmm. it seemed like they were really, they, they thought that these guys had something that our people did not. Hmm. And that really worried me. Um, because as I looked at their lives, I mean, I'm not here to just knock people by name, but just as I looked around and looked at the lives of people that were closely following these people, they were not the kind of people that I wanted to associate with. And so I made this radical decision about 15 years ago, 18 years ago, 
that I was not going to read any nonfiction religious matter by non-Anabaptist authors. Mm. So if it's nonfiction religious then or Christian, Christian nonfiction, um, I'm going to read only Anabaptist, unless there's a couple exceptions. Um, but generally, just on Anabaptist. And also, I quit reading nonfiction almost. And there's not like a hard and fast rule. It's just something I said, you know, I'm going to just kind of cut out the trash and try to, you know, try to let some more, leave some more room for stuff that I need to read. And that kind of started to color my vision more and more. It made me more and more aware of what all these other guys were reading that I wasn't. <laughs> um, and so I, I, it just, it just really made that stuff pop to me. Like as, as it came up, it just popped like, wow. Like it's, it's almost like we don't have any authors, um, which might be true. Um, and then I saw so many of these same people just follow that path to its logical destination, which is worldly Christianity. And that's why, that's why the title Jesus and the Mennonites, I, I saw this worldly Jesus or worldly idea of Jesus taking, is, is taking Mennonites wholesale. But on the flip side of that, I think we really are on the edge of this, of this thirsty generation. Like I, I feel like there is a huge thirst for good, solid teaching and a way forward. And I think if people can catch the vision of, of being able to have churches that they care about and that really matter to them, like I have, I've got to say that since moving here to state college, I have had the best and worst church experience of my life, like all at one time. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Like it's just, it's been amazing. Like I've, I've been, I've just, I just keep being reminded of how, how I went from being a bench warmer, kind of, I mean, not totally, but I felt like I was a bench warmer. I taught Sunday school, you know, I usually would do like a six month Sunday school stint. So I was often, I did a lot of Sunday school teaching. I was like, you know, come on, there's gotta be more and more to life than just teaching Sunday school. Um, and I feel like that has really been something of the small church and the way that it's, it was set up has, has really, really delivered like in a, in a lot of different ways. So it has been really good for me, but at the same time, I think I'm not the only one. Like, I feel like there are probably thousands of other young people in conservative churches that wish for a whole lot more. And if those people could be mobilized and if they could actually, if they could, if they could find a way to use their gifts, wow, we could see, I mean, I, I, and I'm not looking, I'm not thinking about back to Brian's question. I'm not thinking about that. We're going to send two families to Chicago and have a, have a, you know, 12 family, mostly indigenous church. I, I would love that that would happen. I haven't seen it happen. But I do know that you take five or 10 families, that is very, very likely that there will be one or two families join them that are um, 
non-Mennonite background or that, that are from a different faith. And I and I feel like that is a as a pretty good benchmark. I, I it's low. I realize that's really low. But I think that's something that we could attain. And if we would, if we would split up all these 30 family churches, let's say we take a 30 family church, it has it has one or two families that um they have brought in and you take that and split it up into let's say just four or five churches and all of those take two we have it we wouldn't have an instant um doesn't mean that instantly you would have this um growth but often you would because as there's room for people to develop their gifts they will and what happens in a big church is there's just too many people that feel like they have nothing to offer, so they don't offer it. But as we bring that, we scale that down a little bit to where they realize, whoa, it's about us. It's, you know, we can't just kick this off to to Brother Sam or Brother Bryant. It's 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 me. Like I'm the one that's going to have to do this. Then I think it really pushes people to the plate, and then they realize that they're responsible. It's it's their church. They got to do the work, and you can't lay well on just a couple of ministers or something like that. So yeah, I, I think I think that we could see a huge harvest collectively, but I would I'm not here to I'm not here to expect a huge harvest in every group. Maybe that's not what you're wanting to hear, but <laughs> No, it makes sense. This isn't about numbers. Um we see that in a lot of modern Christianity where it's about the numbers. You know, we had 300 people this Sunday. What can we do to bring them in a little more? You know, and it ends up being a show to try to bring people into the church so they can say a little prayer at the end of the service. We all recognize that that makes bitter Christians, that makes broken down Christians, that makes for a powerless church. Um, I feel like the heart of this the heart of your book is that people evangelize people and to put a person behind the gospel living it that's going to be effective um, and the thing is is we only have so much time in the day so it's really hard to evangelize 50 people and then disciple them well you can do that to a few to a handful if you're using your time diligently but if each person in the church feels that it comes down to a question, you know, is your church evangelistic? Oh yeah, we're evangelistic. You know, we do these, we have these programs. It's, it's been a couple of years since it dawned on me that your church isn't evangelistic unless you are, unless every individual in it is, and they've all have that burden. Um, and if they did, you're, you're going to see some fruit. If every individual realized that, it, that the weight is squarely on their shoulders. So I, I feel like that's that's kind of the the push here. Another thing that fascinates me about this, um, you did a really good job at showing that evangelism is every aspect of life. This isn't a uh, a side menu. This isn't a um, you know a little jaunt out that we do every once in a while right. so that we can salve our consciences. I guess that we're being evangelistic. Um, it seems like you hold it into this is what it means to follow Christ and 
I've said this before that it almost seems like we should drop the word evangelism and just talk about following Christ because it gives us the idea that somehow it's something else. And there's so many uh, things in the book that would be good to talk about, but we can let people discover them. Um, but showing that this comes down to how we raise our families. It comes down to how we structure our homes and Amen. things in there. Um, and I love that, that it becomes how we live out our daily lives. And um, another thing, I guess I should have a question here. You, part of this evangelism, you've linked to keeping the children, like mm -hmm. keeping the young people. This is a question I just got on the weekend. What are you going to do to keep your young people? Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. How is evangelism keeping your family? I know you talked about it in different ways. Right. Um, and there's, there's another place where, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I feel like I'm young to be talking about this subject because, you know, my oldest is just now 16. Um, I feel like there is so many aspects of that. And one of those is children often, not always, some children are inspired by their parents' evangelism, but some children are actually turned off by their parents' evangelistic um, drive because what they see is is parents that um, you know are maybe screaming at their children because they need to leave to go pass out tracks um, and the children's in the way or something. You know, like I feel like that's where the Amish have really have something to offer is their retention rate. So I've really looked at the the Amish retention rate. So you know what what's happening with the Amish retention rate? Like why are so many young people staying there? And part of it is I had a, had a good friend that from non Mennonite background. He's since um, moved on again, but he is um, he he said it. he was planning to leave the church, and he told me you'll never leave. And I was like, well, why not? He said, well, there's too many hooks. You know, you have a potential girlfriend, you have um, you know church insurance, and and you know have all these things that are hooks. He said, so you'll never leave, but you know, I don't, for me, it's not really that big a deal. I know what, what life is like out there and it's not that bad. Um, and I've thought about that, like, you know, what kind of hooks do we have? I mean, what kind of hooks do we want to have and what kind do we want to not have? Like, we don't want to retain a whole bunch of ins insincere bench warmers, but what if we could ignite those young people? I and mean, what if we could inspire them? And when they see us doing evangelism, it's not some little compartment of our life, but it's actually something there where we're doing this maybe with them, which actually, I got to say, my children have been way more evangelistic than me because I go to work every day. I'm not home. And then the neighbor across the, what we get looked down on every day by the apartment buildings. The people in the apartment buildings, they looked down on us. And one of the, a man stopped in with a bunch of games one evening and he was like, Hey, um, I want to give these games to your kids. And I was like, What? Like, I didn't know him. I'd never seen him. I mean, never, never really noticed him before. He's like, Yeah, he lives right. I live right up in that apartment building, right up there above you. And, and I watch you, I watch you every day. I watch your children in the backyard and, and I see how just 
how much he said, I just, just wonderful. Like you just couldn't get on gushing about this. Um, and the same way with our neighbor next door, like he, he watched us hang out on the, on the pad. We have a very visible, uh, rooftop it's on, on the roof of our garage of this patio and, and the neighbors watch us and we've heard from various neighbors while well, they're jealous of, of what we have. We tell them, well, come over, like, come I mean, if we have a fire going there or summer evening, come over. And some of them have, like they've come over and joined us. And, um, uh, a couple summers ago, we had a, a lot of neighbor children around our, in our yard and, and one of the children's Bible was all soaking wet. And I was like, what in the world happened? And I started trying to figure out what had happened. And here they had been in an argument with the neighborhood children and had taken the Bible out to prove something and forgot <laughs> it and left it out there. <laughs> it got all wet. That's amazing. That's great. So you know, some of those things I feel like are are your know, daily life. Mm-hmm. And with that, like it this is not directly about children, but like one of, we were passing out tracks many years ago and the person passing out tracks, I think it might've been my dad. I'm not sure what stopped at a house and figured out people were new in town. They were, they had just moved into town and nice young couple. And, and so dad went home and told my mom, Hey, let's bake some pies and take them over there. And so they baked some pies and took them over there. And, and long story short, they eventually joined our church. Um, it wasn't about the tracks. It was about the pies. Um, and they didn't come just because of pies, but they realized that somebody cared enough. I mean, what does it take to walk around and, and you know, throw a pre-printed track in somebody's door? Not, not much. A little bit of courage. But they actually care enough to come back with some pies and say, hey, you know, you're invited to, you, we'll invite you to church or come over. Like that depth of hospitality and care can really set, I, th- I think is the gospel. Like, it, I mean, is, I should, I need to be careful about how I say that. Like, it's not the, not the only component, but I think that is a very important component of the gospel is actually caring about people. And, and I think as our children see us caring about people and, they will realize what we're doing. And if they see it's coming from our hearts and not from just some trying to get brownie points and, and be about, I mean, score evangelism, brownie points. I think that's, I, I think they can really, I feel like we can, if we're authentic, they can see that. Amen. Yeah, that's good. Thank you, Hector. Um, I think we could talk for two hours here. So let's let's dig in a little bit. Let's dig in a little bit. Okay, let's take a little practical here. Um, so your book is, you know, is, is very practical. Um, it's very inspiring. You 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 get to the root of of some of the issues that we have um, um, that were that keep us from being ad, ad, advancing kingdom communities. But why don't you um, on page forty you talk about uh, an addiction that we have uh, of your book, and uh, in, in page forty-seven, but on page forty specifically, you talk about structure and security. So, one of the first questions I was given this book to an older gentleman, um, 
a bishop, uh, a Mennonite bishop that I was interacting with at a family gathering. I gave him this book, and and so you know, as we looked at looked at talked about it, um, he's like, "So, is Hector promoting house church? Um, what is he promoting in in this book?" He said, and then they said, "Well, the Amish, I guess that's what they do, right?" <laughs> so like, yeah, that's what they do. Um, so. What do you imagine? Like, are you against structure? Are you against security? As you think about this this addiction that we have to this to safety structure, you know, um, how do you how, what kind of what, what kind of vision do you want to cast for us as we move forward? So, one of the few, one of the very very few um, non Mennonite books that I've that I've read in or non-Anabaptist books that I've read in the last um, 15 years is Mark Batterson's book in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. And I really love that book because of the, the way it, it um, just really, he really had a very interesting way of bringing out this, um, our fear. Like we're, we're really afraid. We really love security. And I don't, I am not against structure at all. I, I love, like, I don't, my, my last thing that, it, that I'm looking for is to tear down good church structure. But I think that we have this, we have, we have used structure as a way to kind of hide behind. We've really hidden behind structure. And, and for the record, I am not for house churches. I am for I am for having church in houses, but I'm not mm-hmm. for having a house church. Um, if you if you get the difference there, I think like the with the Amish and with you know with our group and with some other groups, we have church in houses, which I think is great. But I think that's quite different than a house church where you have a couple individuals that are just upset with something and decide to go have their little house church. Like I have, I feel like there's no future for that. I mean, right. maybe there's occasional, occasionally that may work, but that is not the vision of that I would have. I, my vision is to see, I love the followers of the way model. I love the way they have, um, I love the way Finney has, 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 well, I guess it wasn't just Finney, but Finney and Matthew and Charles and Ed, I love the way they've, they've really, um, put that out there is not a, not not house churches, but churches and houses. Um, and I, I really think there's a lot of potential in that model. And I'm not opposed to someone having a church house. If that's if that's what works for you, then then go for it. But that does slow you down a little bit. Like I feel like that can be a that can be a drag. Like that can be that can be friction. And there's also the structure. There's also a lot of unnecessary structures. And I want to be real careful how I say that because so many people. I see a lot of people trying to get rid of structure because their goal is more freedom mm. and their goal is not to reduce structure for efficiency is to re- is to reduce structure for freedom. And I think there's a quite there's, there's a big difference between that. Um we need enough and I thought about that as, as looking at this Russian Ukrainian war. Um early on Russia really struggled because they were very top down and their 
all their the commanders all had to wait for for people to their bosses to tell them what to do down the line and they didn't have, they couldn't make decisions on the battlefield and i think that's kind of very similar to the way the the mennonite church has operated or too many of them have operated is it's so top down that everybody feels like they can't make a decision unless they get it from the top and it's a slow process hmm. when you need to make decisions on the battlefield you know a, a slow process like that is going to make you very inefficient and and is going to get you killed so i'm for lighter structure but i'm not for no structure yeah that's good um and i've seen that too in you like it's you want to see a biblical structure right um you know you want to see you know people ordained you want to see people uh, shepherds leading elders leading you know that's there's all biblical structures that we need um and yeah i think maybe the maybe the word that you're not interested in is like the home church idea right where it's just like me and in my little group but it's it's where there's there's the appropriate oversight input and eldership um and, and that can get worked out yeah like you were saying many many different ways whether it's you know, so we meet on our a big covered back porch in the summertime, and with a nice backyard there to play for the children to play. That, that works well. Uh, wintertime, we have to find a, a place to meet in, um, uh, for, for the winter because we are we're too large for a lot of our houses here. So, you know, we rent rent space. Um, but yeah, you can you can do those kind of things. Um, so, yeah, so yeah, so you, you kind of get into that, and then um, another point that you talk about too. And I, this is kind of maybe my little my little. Um, um, my little one-string banjo thing that I've been strumming on the last number of years is this idea of, of Anabaptists getting back into kingdom people, getting back into urban centers, becoming those townspeople again, right? And you talk about that on page 75. You said you elaborate kind of on why cities are intimidating. <clears throat> and um, uh, and and especially to 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 people who, who grew up in a kind of a... Uh, uh, more of a country-oriented Anabaptist-type lifestyle looks really intimidating, and and you acknowledge some of the reasons why, rightly so, it is. Um, but how how can how can we take away some of the intimidation? Like how can we really acknowledge the issues uh, and take away some of the intimidation? But also, and and acknowledging the issues too. You'd mentioned there as how it seems like. Cities do have uh, a power of darkness that maybe other places don't have, which is a kind of fascinating idea. But yeah, do, do you want to do, do you want to elaborate on that at all? Do you have a specific vision to see more Anabaptists in cities like me? <laughs> yeah, I want you to move to Chicago, but I don't know if I want to go with you. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that is really wow. That's a big question because at the same time, I mean, I, I love the idea of Mennonites and Amish, whatever, plain people moving into cities. And I think there's a lot of potential. The, the thing that I see about that that worries me is there's been a lot of that tried in the past and it's not worked out so well. So I'm hoping... There again, let's talk about the follows the way model. Like I love that, you know, the way they're doing community in cities. I think that is, I think there's, they have something going on there. And I think 
we have the same thing at State College. This the close community in a city, and that and that is where cities actually have a big advantage is the ability for a lot of families to live in close proximity without stomping on each other. Um, you know, we can be very close, but I was just looking at our street tonight and I was like, wow, this is beautiful. Like as I was pulling out of there, um, you know, Delbert's car is parked at extra weight. I mean, Jeanette lives above us and Delbert's next one down. And then Gabe and Jordan are living in, in Brian's house along with Sam. And I'm like, wow, like this is really neat. Like, it, we we've, I mean that that community is is very nice. Um, so it, cities do give you the ability to to group up as communities a lot more, and I think if we look at if we're looking at if we approach cities with the idea of Amish evangelism instead of the idea of church planting, like just as a plant, um, or like a seed that's going to grow versus actually getting a, a, a viable community right off the bat, you know, about four or five, five families that allows us to be able to have some critical mass and to, and to present the living gospel. I think there's a lot of potential. And I see, like I drive through American cities and I'm just like, this is a, St. Louis has so much area and Kansas City, like I, I drove through those cities a lot in Missouri. And just look at all those houses that look like they could use some tender care. And I see these these uh, pictures of Detroit where there's vast, you know, city blocks that are just could could use communities. And so I think there is a ton of potential there for this for the city vision. Like I I don't I don't at all disagree with the city vision. I do realize that. A good eighty to ninety percent of Mennonites are never going to go for that, and so I want to empower them. I want to empower the other eighty or ninety percent to not just sit back and say, "Well, we're not going to move to Chicago, so we're never going to do anything." Like, if you can't move to Chicago, so what? We move to move to rural Louisiana. Like, you don't have to move to Chicago. Like, you don't have to move to to a inner city to be effective. You just don't need to sit on a pile. Like I think, I think there's room for all of us, but I would really love to see the city vision be directed a, a lot harder at Christian communities and not just, um, you know, children's ministries and, and Sunday schools. And like, I'm not saying those things are bad or wrong. I'm just saying, let's get out there and live our lives in front of people. Mm-hmm. This is a conversation that is, yeah, absolutely um, dear to my heart since we live in the city and have a church in the city, um, a church in a house. Um, There's one thing you said in chapter 15, living in close proximity to the people we want to reach. That's the vision of the city. And um, I would say the heartbeat of your book is a lot of the vision that we have for the city of Calgary, that there would be communities duplicated that we're not building one big church here in Brentwood that, you know, we can have converts, disciple them, have people move in and just put them in other communities. I mean, Calgary to drive from one end to the other is probably about an hour. And I mean, it's a very sprawling spread out and we could, you can have churches in every community in this city and you would have 
fields white ready for harvest um, in every community. So it is something that needs to be done. And I recognize that there's communities outside of the city that need people to live, move in, work with people, live in front of people, live in glass houses and um, show the world that, hey, there's a God in Israel. Um, so yeah. I, I love the your vision for the city and the, your, your statement to occupy the city. Maybe the cities are under the powers of darkness because those who are fighting for the kingdom have avoided them. Right. Just maybe. I think that's true. I mean, I, I, I really do. I believe, I mean, I don't think it's just cities. Like there's rural areas that have the same, same problem, but there are, you do have a lot more people. Um, unbelievers tend towards cities. Uh, just, it's just natural. Yeah. Even if you're looking at, um, you know, rural Americans generally believe in God and, you know, it's God and country kind of people in rural America, which also makes them harder to reach. Like, I feel like God and country people are almost harder to reach than people that are are completely, you know, um, unchurched or, or, or not nearly as, um, nearly as entrenched in some of that. And I, and I feel like that has been a downfall of a lot of plain people, including the Amish is they've got drawn into this God and country kind of religion, um, because they are, because they live in the country. So that's something to think about too, when you're, when you're deciding whether you want to live in the city or in the country is, you know, pick your poison. But, um, I also, I mean, Glenn actually looked at that, my statement about cities being under the power of darkness. And he was like, um, is that like, can you defend that? <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> I don't know. I believe it to be true, but like, can I defend it? I don't know. Um, probably not. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think when you, when you look at scripture, Hector, I mean, typically cities are in the old Testament are looked at as often, you know, the Babylon. Right. They're the place of, of the wicked people. And starting right there in Genesis 11, right? All in, in, in together building this tower. Yeah, right. No, which I, is, I think it's, I think it's, you can get that from scripture. Um, where's that little tower at? I get, uh, get closer. There we go. Yeah. There we go. That tower. Now, that is not a boat. Some people thought it was a boat. That's actually a tower of Babel. <laughs> um, and, and that was what we're, that was what I was trying to represent is that, is that, tower that reaches to heaven that brings us all together and says we will reach up to heaven ourselves and we are going to build a community and it's going to be this powerful and they're not relying on god and so god says okay we're going to confuse your languages and so i'm trying to i'm kind of drawing a parallel between babel and the confusion of languages and the modern Anabaptist church, um, large Anabaptist churches and, and church splits, kind of the same. I'm trying to draw a parallel there between the two you know, of church splits being partly maybe God saying, hey, um, you're not going to build this community to your standards. You're going to build it to mine. And if you don't want to do it my way, then, then there'll be friction.
Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you, um, Hector, for uh, for giving us some of the backstory and uh, letting us pick your brain. I, I've enjoyed uh, a little bit, you know, picking your brain on this book as you were as well. You know what? I didn't really have much of a chance to even talk to you about as you were writing it because one day you handed me a book and said, "I just I wrote a book." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> I kind of knew you'd been talking about it, but you, you finally sat down and made it happen. And maybe that's why you were kind of like absent in the community for a while. You were writing this book. Um, anyhow, Sam, any more any more questions? I do want to read a couple a couple paragraphs out of here, then wrap up. But um, any more questions for Brother Hector? Like I said, there's a lot of things um, that I you know wrote down and uh, things that I feel like are crucial to consider in this idea of evangelism, um, but. I, I don't have a question right off. Um, actually, yeah, I do. Chapter 12, you talked about the place of women. And you made a comment about the uh, first century. It says women are the primary drivers at spreading the gospel in the first century. I was curious, do you know how that looked? Like, how 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 did that come about? So I don't exactly. Um, but I read that in the... Um, patient vermin of the early church mm-hmm. and he says that like the historical record has women as as some of the primary drivers because they could men had to meet certain society and they had they were for one thing men in a lot of a lot of cultures men were allowed to freely interact with women especially if they were other people's wives so in the, in the kind of culture that they had they couldn't, men couldn't move through society nearly as freely as women could. The women could move among women without any, without, with very little restriction. And that lack of restriction and the, and the natural, you know, women naturally like to talk. And, and so when a slave woman that is a Christian, um, gets sold to a different owner, the gospel moves with her. Um, and a lot, and and the gospel really snuck around undercover that way through just women, um, faithful women that as they as they went to a new place, they would tell others about their faith, and as they told others about their faith, a new church would spring up around theirs around these women. Which is fascinating. Like I never, I never would have thought that you know that that kind of like the gospel could have moved in those ways. But you know, it's very interesting. Like how that how women, which I think today the women still have that ability to, like just like us, we live right next door to a um, fairly large apartment complex. It's not huge, but it's big. There's a lot of single moms. I'm not going to go, you know, hang out with those single moms, but my wife can, and she does. Like she, they'll they'll come over, and and one of them occasionally brings some um, Dunkin' Donuts coffee by for. Sorry, Brian, um, <laughs> and you know, hot drink or something, and and it's it's just really, I'm I'm amazed at at, at how my wife can reach places that I, and my children that I cannot. 
So as men, we're we're fairly restricted, even in our society. Like, like we're still fairly, we still have to be fairly careful. Where women, I feel like, can move much more freely. Mm-hmm. And Interesting. I think that's I think that's just a a real. That's where they're critical to spreading the gospel. Like women, women have a unique ability. That reminds me of a story from the early Anabaptists, how they finally forbade the women to go to market. So, you know, they weren't allowed to preach the gospel, but the women would go to market and talk to other women and the gospel was getting spread. And finally they told them they had to stay home, but they were still allowed to have people in their house. And they finally, I don't remember how it ended up. They chained them at home or did something to keep them from getting out and spreading the gospel. That's, it made me think about that. (laughs) It is an effective evangelism. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I think it's such a shame where women get denigrated or that, you know, it's like, well, we can't, we can't preach. So what, who are we? Like, I feel like that's just such a shame because they have, there is this, they have this huge gift that we can't even like, like us men, we can't, we, we can't go there. Yeah. One thing you mentioned as well, quickly, uh, before we wrap up there, Brian, um, that moving into these other communities, you're taking your culture with you. This isn't a shedding of culture to go do something novel. It's taking your culture with you. And the reason I bring that up is I would say that my wife has had probably more than double the opportunities to talk to people with people approaching her because of a distinctive way of dress, you know, that is a part of our Christian culture. Um, And it's been interesting who comes up to her and has questions about um, why she's dressed the way she is. And it really has opened the doors for a lot of interesting conversations, um, which have been amazing. And so living that in a city, taking that culture with you, living it in the city, you get a lot of looks. If you're riding the train, you're going to have actually a lot of Muslim people come up and talk to you because they love to see um, modest women. And so that's opened up a lot of conversations. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to say about this book, um, I, I somehow got dropped in the editing, but it was supposed to have a a plug in the front of it for our prayer group because that is actually how this book got written. So last January, I we start we have small groups and I started this new group and and I said, you know what, we have these questions we ask each other every week. And I was working on this book. I was really struggling. And I said, hey, I'm going to put this on my accountability question. Um, how about work on my book? And boom, like I got done three months. Um, <laughs> so I think they, they played a huge part in actually getting this book out. Getting it. Um, yeah. Awesome. Great. Okay. So in, in wrap up here, um, I want to read a couple paragraphs here out of uh, of page 41. As we become conditioned to more and more comfort, convenience, and pleasure, we become less tolerant of discomfort, inconvenience, and suffering. And isn't it the truth that we live in such a hedonistic society? Wow. And it's, it's affecting us. All right, continuing. And if we are serious about starting new churches in new areas, we're going to need to get 
comfortable being uncomfortable. We will have less leisure. We will have less money. We will not be with our old friends. We will not be with our extended families. We will need to make new relationships. We will need to relate well with difficult people. We may need to miss family reunions. In other words, our lives will lose the neat little edges we love so well. We will not be able to indulge our flesh in every pleasure and comfort that our hearts desire, and that is a good thing. It is arguably one of the biggest benefits of intentional church division. And you know what? We hardly even talked about that, this intentional church division thing that really, right off the get-go, you're talking about. Um, So read the book. Find out more about that. Continuing that, you continue, this is war. We need hardened soldiers who are willing to sacrifice comforts for the kingdom. We need soldiers who are willing to occupy new territories. Misguided asceticism has long been a plague of the church. Religious radicals have recognized a lethal epidemic of comfort seeking, but they address it in the wrong way. In an expansion-focused church, there is plenty of pain to go around. There is no need to create silly programs and practices aimed at crucifying the flesh. Embrace the pain, crucify the flesh, expand the kingdom, fight like men, softies need not apply. So Hector, thank you for uh, the challenge that you call to in this book. Um, I, I consider it uh, an honor uh, to interview you on this. It's an honor to to have walked with you the last five years uh, and seeing you and your family and just your desire for the advancement of the kingdom. You know, you I've seen you help with starting a church in Pittsburgh and now starting a church in Phillipsburg. Um, and you're right there. You're, you're that that's your heart uh, is to see this expansion happen. And you would like to see a church or churches started in Hawaii. That's a vision you are carrying for years now. And um, our, our congregation and you are praying towards it and have no idea what they look like. Um, but you, you're not panicky about it, but you, that's your prayer, is that God could use you and some other families to start a church there. And so uh, for those who are listening, uh, join us in praying uh, for kingdom churches, communities in Hawaii. So again, Hector, has been a joy to have you here. For, the, for our listeners, you can go to our website, um, strengththestrength.org. Uh, uh, we now have the S2S books button on there with, with our books. And Hector's book is on there. Um, so check that out. Consider purchasing that book and consider giving it to others. We actually have bulk discounts as well. So we would love to ship you books. We do free shipping of $35 and over. Um, so um, hop on the website. Or you can also fax us or email us at contact at strengthtostrength.org. Some of our listeners don't have internet. They're calling in listening to recordings. Um, so you can email us at uh, yeah, that contact at strengththestrength.org um, there and place your order, reach out to us and we can interact with you that way and get your order in. So again, thank you for listening. And I feel like we really need to have prayer uh, around this. And so um, this is this is not um, a softies game, is it? Um, this is at the heart of the gospel. The advancement of the kingdom done in a holistic, holistic and flourishing way. Um, so we need prayer, and that's something you talk about uh, in your in your talk there. So Hector, go ahead and lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of 
um, joining you in expanding the kingdom. And God, I thank you that you've given us this responsibility and this gift. Lord, I pray that you would be with those many, many people that have given up and buried their talent, that they would go out and get their shovels out and dig up that talent and use it to expand your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that you would inspire many to mobilize and to go out and share the living gospel, put it on the doorsteps of everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Go peace. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. Bye.